The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, we started the week with a Massachusetts poll in the national spotlight. Our own uh, Boston Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley, in the midst of a roiling spat with uh, President Donald Trump. And uh, those Trump tweets led to accusations of racism and then the rounds of statement both from uh, national lawmakers as well as uh, local Massachusetts politicians condemning uh, what the president had to say. And then the parsing of what is racist versus what is xenophobic and uh that's uh, really where the week started, on the national stage. And from there, with our uh, state budget still overdue and things at a relative standstill up here on Beacon Hill, um, that's the uh, theme that we're sort of following uh, on this week's Statehouse Takeout with Colin Young, Chris Lasinski, and Matt Murphy. We've got a number of topics that have uh, either federal or interstate uh, implications that uh, played out this week. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, Sam. Matt Murphy, we uh, got to Tuesday of this week, and the governor uh, went down to Connecticut to a a picturesque university campus down there for an informal luncheon with uh, two neighboring states' governors, uh, Governor Lamont of Connecticut and Raimondo of Rhode Island. Uh, And they all came to the lunch table with uh, maybe some takeout, I don't know, and, um, <laughs> and, and their own specific uh, uh, policy issues that, that they wanted to discuss with their neighboring state executives. Yeah, I don't actually know what they had for lunch. I should have asked that question. But uh, Governor Lamont, uh, who is new uh, this year, uh, the newbie in that bunch, invited Governor Raimondo from Rhode Island, Governor Baker, down to uh, the campus of Eastern Connecticut State University. And the governors talked for about two hours. And uh, Governor Baker said that he came wanting to talk about the uh, regional transportation initiative that's uh, proposed among those three states and others to try and get uh, carbon emissions out of the transportation sector. Governor Raimondo was there uh, very interested in talking about uh, both interstate data sharing around uh, wage data so that she's uh, so that she can uh, she says uh, more accurately measure the success of Rhode Island's job training programs and presumably the same could be done uh, in the other states and uh, Governor Lamont seeking some advice from his more experienced colleagues on a battle that he's having with his own legislature regarding raising tolls to pay for transportation and also talking to them about ways they can partner to basically buy things uh, seeing if they can buy energy or healthcare services prescription drugs things like that together and maybe get cheaper prices for their states. But interestingly, I thought, uh, given the heavy focus on data sharing at at this powwow, the uh, latest uh, RMV debacle and uh, Massachusetts' failure to actually share data with other states on uh, drivers uh, from outside of Massachusetts who are violating uh, state driving laws did not come up during uh, their two-hour discussion. Yeah, actually, uh, Governor Lamont uh, said that they talked about efficiency and effective sharing of data, but not specifically in the motor vehicles world. Not specifically in the motor vehicles world or pertaining to the RMV. But uh, the uh, three of them... Uh, do have, well, at least Governor Baker and Raimondo do have a long history of uh, working together. And Raimondo also noted how she was there to nudge Baker along. She's very interested in improving rail service, 
uh, to uh, between Providence and Boston, uh, something uh, the two of them maybe agreed to kind of uh, get on the stick and uh, pester the their their federal delegations and try and work on Amtrak to uh, partner with them because Amtrak really owns those tracks and uh, we may see some movement there, or at least some uptick in, in talks around uh, getting Amtrak to go along with improving uh, the, the the rail service between those two cities and they're going to meet again in October uh, to kind of see where they are and uh, continue this dialogue in Rhode Island. And this was just a meeting of southern New England governors. Uh, Has Governor Baker held any uh, powwow like this with anyone from northern New England? Not a specific northern New England get-together that I can remember, though the New England governors do from time to time uh, get together. I know I've been down to Providence when they've uh, had similar summits when all of them are are together to talk about regional issues. Energy, of course, is a big regional issue that they uh, like to talk about uh, when they do get together. But this was a, 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 a more, a smaller uh, more intimate group that Lamont convened. And he said he did it in part because he wanted to kind of get to know uh, his neighboring governors because he is, as I said, uh, the newbie on the block. Yeah, and all the New England governors and the premiers of eastern Canadian provinces uh, who have some sort of an organization, uh, they all get together every year or two, I think, as well. Yeah, that's right. Now, meantime, Matt, uh, plans for the Vineyard Wind offshore wind project uh, seem to be humming along, but uh, federal regulators uh, are now taking their time. Um, This is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And uh, what's... What's holding things up here as they weigh a, um, an environmental impact statement for that project? Yeah, that's the big question. Vineyard Wind uh, building the 800 megawatt uh, wind farm out off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, and they were expecting uh, a critical federal permit, this environmental impact statement from BOEM uh, by July 12th that didn't come uh, the federal agency saying that they weren't yet ready to issue it. And so I did get a chance to ask the governor about this when he was down in Connecticut. And he indicated that he and Vineyard Wind officials had met with federal uh, officials about the project and were given guidance, he said, about what some of the outstanding issues are. And the governor said that uh, they would continue to work on it this month. But uh, sort of somewhat cryptically, we still don't know what that guidance was uh, about and what could be holding up this project. And time is above the is time is of the essence uh, because of the tight uh, timeline for construction uh, and the contracts that Vineyard Wind has signed with regard to getting this project operational by 2021. Now, meantime, though, the uh, BOEM says that they have until. March of 2020, I think, to complete that statement. Yeah, I mean, technically, under the the federal guidelines, the the bureau has two full years to complete their work, and that would push out the the time frame until uh, March 30th, 2020, which would be well uh, beyond uh, the date that a Vineyard Wind was expecting, and it would be way too late for them to uh, be able to come close to meeting their projected uh, construction timeline. Hmm. To put a little context around this, uh, Sam, you have to remember that this uh, Vineyard Wind Project is supposed to be the first real uh, utility-scale wind farm in the country. There's already one wind farm off of Block Island uh, in Rhode Island, but it's a very small wind farm. This is the real, the first real uh, full-scale wind farm. So this is the first time one of these is going through this federal process. So everyone's still a little unsure of exactly how this is supposed to go. But Vineyard Wind was certainly expecting to to know something from the feds by July 12th, 
Uh, and that's important because they have, as Matt mentioned, a really tight uh, timeline here for their construction. The the plan has been to start uh, to to financially close on the project this year and to start onshore construction this year. Uh, the first turbine is expected to go into the seabed in 2021, and 84 turbines are expected to be up and running in 2022. Uh, another key date here, if anything is to happen with this timeline, uh, Vineyard Wind has to be producing power for Massachusetts by February 15th of 2022 in order to get the federal investment tax credit. And that's a key um, uh, federal piece that makes this whole project financially feasible. Mm, I would imagine. And that plays a big role in that, you know, remember when, when Vineyard Wind's price came out, everyone was stunned by how low it was. Well, a big part of that is the ITC makes it makes that financially feasible. So they got to get going. Right. Yeah, exactly. Little time to spare. Sure. And as far as what the things are that people will be focusing on between now and the end of the month, that's what Baker said about that project guidance. I guess we'll just wait wait and see what those things are. Yeah, there were some guesses that it, it may be related to the fishing industry. Mm. That's, of course, been one that uh, has come up time and time again throughout the process, not just with Vineyard Wind, but with um, wind projects up and down the coast. Uh, as this new industry grows, uh, trying to make sure that it doesn't harm the fishing industry, uh, which certainly has uh, plenty of other issues to contend with. Sure. Well, Colin, while I've got your ear, uh, and since we were talking about our neighbors to the south, southeast, um, you heard, and, and actually I heard at a, a committee hearing this week, that it's time. It's time to launch an offensive on the uh, gaming industry and our southeastern neighbors. Yeah, that's right. We heard from uh, lawmakers down in the southeastern uh, region, down by Plain Ridge Park Casino in Plainville, uh, that it's time for Massachusetts to go on the offensive, uh, economically, that is, against Rhode Island uh, when it comes to gaming and gambling. Down at Plain Ridge Park Casino, uh, of course, that's the state's slots parlor. So there are only slot machines there and uh, some video uh, games, but there are no table games. And, and there's been some question as to whether or when uh, another casino license would be awarded for that part of the state. Yeah, that's right. That's the uh, what's known as Region C, the the. Um, and that's for the full-scale casinos like MGM Springfield or Encore Boston Harbor. The state could still issue one more full-scale casino license, and it would have to be located uh, in that southeastern part of the state. But meantime, they've got Plain Ridge. Exactly. That was the first um, uh, gambling site to open after the 2011 law passed. Uh, and it, like I said, it's just slot machines. But just over the border in Rhode Island, uh, Tiverton and Twin River, uh, those are two sort of similar facilities to Plain Ridge Park, but since Plain Ridge Park opened and started um, uh, you know, attracting players from Massachusetts who at one point had been driving into Rhode Island, Rhode Island has since added table games to their uh, casinos uh, in an attempt to draw players back to Rhode Island from Massachusetts, sort of mm. a, a one-upsmanship type situation. So we heard from lawmakers down in that part of the state uh, this week that it's time to, for the state to allow Plain Ridge Park to add up to 30 table games and an additional 250 slot machines. And just uh, for reference, Encore Boston Harbor has 3,000 slot machines. How many down at Plain Ridge? Uh, well, it is authorized for up to 1,250 slot machines. Oh, gotcha. And they're asking in this bill, right, for authorization for 30 uh, table games, 242 table games up at Encore. So just sort of a different scale for, for comparison. Yeah, it would be adding 
adding one option um, without really making it a a full casino in the way that that MGM or, or Encore is. Right. And speaking of Encore, uh, we got the first revenue numbers at the start of this week for uh, the opening week of the Everett Casino. Uh, what was it, Colin? $2 million a day? Yeah, just about $2 million a day for the first eight days that they were open. Uh, of course, that's the, the initial you know, rush. Everyone wants to go check it out. Right. Um, so I'm interested to see when we have the full uh, a full month's numbers, but just those eight days at Encore Boston Harbor uh, came close to generating the same amount of revenue that MGM Springfield generated the entire month. Can I just say, I can't believe that those numbers came out on Monday. Feels like three weeks ago that we heard those numbers. <laughs> what's what's made the week go on so long, Matt? I don't know. Maybe it's all of the nothing we've been doing, the sitting around and waiting for a state budget. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're busier, the time goes by faster. Oh, fair point. Not that we haven't been busy. I, I don't mean to and say And not that. that we haven't been having fun. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Lasinski, you've been following the RMV news all this week. The newest thing today, well, a couple of things today. Uh, we've got a scheduled hearing for uh, RMV oversight for Monday. But uh, before we get to that, you've just uh, written a story for us about a, a new Governor Baker bill that would address one of the issues that was at play, one of the parts of the problem that led to that fatal uh, motorcycle pileup in uh, New Hampshire. This deals with commercial driver's licenses. That, that's right. Uh, something that the governor had been speaking about and forecasting would come in uh, you know, many of the press conferences and public appearances as this whole scandal of the RMV has unfolded over the past three weeks or month or so. Uh, exact bill itself isn't out with the clerks yet, but in a letter that uh, the governor released based basically outlining what the bill would include. Uh, he indicated that it's going to take a, a new approach to the state's commercial driver's license approval system, basically require that anyone seeking a commercial driver's license in Massachusetts has three continuous years with a, a clear driving record with no serious violations or suspensions in it. Um, anyone who does not have that would simply not qualify. And it also takes a... It also aims to improve some of the notification and uh, penalties that are already in place for the commercial driver's license system. So basically, you know, if approved, uh, any employer who hires commercial drivers, you know, um, shipping companies who hire truck drivers, anything like that, would be required to enroll in this already existing digital system where they would be alerted within a day if anyone on their payroll with a commercial license, uh, you know, had that license suspended or was caught up in any sort of serious driving violation, kind of aiming that as a way to make sure that everybody is on the same page about drivers at all times, because as we've seen over the past few weeks, um, there was really not that kind of clear communication uh, across all relevant parties. And you mentioned a digital notification system as opposed to sending a piece of snail mail that could end up in a box in a room somewhere in Quincy, uh, which was the issue with those dozens of cartons. And, and that gets to uh, the subject matter of the hearing that's set for Monday, oversight hearing before the Transportation Committee, and they have quite a guest list, at least of invited guests. They've invited about, I want to say, seven guests. 
Transportation Secretary Stephanie Pollack, some others at the RMV from the former registrar, Aaron Devaney, who resigned shortly after that New Hampshire crash that killed seven motorcyclists, the interim registrar, Jamie Tesler, and some others in more specific departments that should have been tasked with overseeing these out-of-state driver uh, violation notices that, as you had mentioned, went piling up in a storage room in Quincy for at least 14 months, if not longer. Um, We don't yet know if all seven of those people will be attending and testifying, but they've all been invited. The committee has asked for a pretty broad range of documents as well, uh, both internal policies that ostensibly outline what RMV employees are supposed to do with these notices and digital communications covering a good four or five years worth uh, so they can get a sense of whether people inside the RMV were talking about this, were talking about the backlog that was building up or were communicating issues with processing those notifications that may have contributed. Sure. And that hearing will be led by uh, Senator Joe Boncori from Winthrop and Rep. Bill Strauss from uh, Mattapoisett. Um And uh, also, as we look ahead to uh, next week, the Senate has scheduled a formal session for Thursday. Some bills dealing with child marriage, optometrists, and health care provider networks. So quite a a trio of bills there. Uh, But in the meantime, we have a formal session in the House on Monday. Uh, Chris, um, how are things looking as as we head into next week budget-wise? We still don't know for a fact where we stand, but the scheduling of a House formal on Monday seems to hint that we might be approaching a compromise finally after weeks and weeks of waiting. We're currently on day 19 of the 2020 fiscal year without a budget as we sit here recording. Um, the, the messaging has been kind of vague and kind of unclear like it has been all along. Earlier in the week, uh, House Democratic leadership seemed to change the, the target goal to next week for a budget accord. Uh, House Speaker Robert DeLeo asked Uh, the governor to file another interim budget to cover August spending in case a budget was not in place by the start of the next month. So all of the public signals have been indicating that uh, the six negotiators tasked with resolving differences are still going at it. And Matt, you were looking this week at what exactly does a 112th budget cover? What exactly does an interim budget cover? And it's not about time. It's about dollars. Uh, What did you find out? Yeah, sadly, I didn't find out as much as I wanted to find out. But Chris was actually in the right place at the right time on Thursday. He caught uh, the governor uh, sneaking into House Speaker Robert DeLeo's office on Thursday morning. Uh, And later yesterday, I I chased the governor down the hall and asked him about that meeting and finally got him to say that he was feeling after that conversation and others more optimistic. And then uh, I asked him about filing that second interim budget that the speaker had asked for. The governor said he didn't want to do it, not if I don't have to. He said, so these, I think, all signs uh, that are pointing to a potential deal early, uh, potentially early next week, especially with the House scheduling that formal, which brings us to the one twelfth. And you're right. That was a $5 billion bill. Uh, with no end date on it, unlike some other states that do these uh, continuing resolutions, uh, like New Hampshire, where they still don't have a budget but have a CR in place until October 1st. Wait, and they're dealing with a veto situation up there, right? In th- in that state, yeah, of course, uh, Governor Sununu vetoed that bill, that budget bill, and they're trying to get it done. But So I, I spent the better part of two days, I don't know if I want to admit that, trying to figure out exactly when 
the five billion dollars would run out and sadly i can report to you that i still don't know the answer but roughly speaking it doesn't end on july 31st there is enough money most likely to get into the month of august uh some wiggle room as uh, one person in the administration told me uh so i think that's why you're seeing the governor saying that he doesn't want to file it if he doesn't have to uh because if he thinks that there's a deal potential for early next week uh they could potentially uh give him his 10 days to review it and not have to do a second interim budget colin well given that this might be our last podcast uh before we we get the fiscal year 2020 uh budget i just wanted to uh follow up on last week and give you this week's uh budget watch obscure former red sox player uh if i can bless you last week i I took the, the last time massachusetts had uh uh, the last time the governor had signed a budget into effect before the fiscal year started was in 2010. And, uh, of course, that was the season where Darnell McDonald was the uh, you know big, exciting player uh, on the Red Sox, came out of nowhere and seemed like he was walking off every game. Went, went back to nowhere. He exactly, went right back where he came from. I think he ended up with the Cubs at one point. But uh, here's your obscure former Red Sox from, from 2010. Two days before the last on-time budget was signed, the Red Sox released Boof Bonzer. Boof Bonzer. One of the great names in baseball. Absolutely. (laughs) Came over from the Twins, was released uh, June 28th, 2010 from the Red Sox. Boof Bonzer. I think he pitched like two games for the Sox. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even remember him playing for the Red Sox at any point in time. I don't remember the name being on the Sox, that's all. Well, that's your history lesson for the week. That's That's fun facts with Colin A. Young. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week. Stay cool. What, Matt? What were you going to say? What? What were you going to say? What? We might be working. What do you mean? You said have a good weekend. Yeah? We might be working if there's a budget deal on Sunday, so I'll see you here soon. Oh. (laughs) All right. See you when we see you. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.